On this episode of Bristlecone Firesides, we are discussing an allegory found in the fifth chapter of the Book of Jacob found in the Book of Mormon. As I listened back to our conversation, it dawned on me that we never actually told the full story of the master of the vineyard and his olive tree. So for those who are unfamiliar with the Book of Mormon or for those who need a refresher, I'm going to tell the story of the olive tree. This comes directly from Wikipedia with some light editing from me because I'm too lazy to write out my own synopsis and I don't want to read the entirety of the text from the Book of Mormon. So, once upon a time, the master of the vineyard grew a tame olive tree, but in time it grew old and began to decay. In hopes of saving the tree, he pruned it, dug the ground, and nourished it. In time, some new branches appeared, but the top of the tree began to perish. So the master of the vineyard instructed his servant to cut off the decayed branches and replace them with grafted branches from wild olive trees. Meanwhile, the pruned natural branches of the tree were transplanted to other parts of the vineyard. In time, the original tree, now with the wild olive branches grafted into it, grew to give good fruit. Those natural branches of the original tree were transplanted into poor soil, also grew to give good fruit. However, a natural branch of the original tree that was transplanted into good soil grew to give a mix of good and poor fruit. The master of the vineyard instructed his servant to cut off the branches of this tree that gave poor fruit and burn them. However, the servant suggested to the master that with further care, this tree too might also bring forth good fruit. And so the master and his servant worked diligently at nourishing all of the trees. After a long time, the master and the servant returned to the vineyard and found that all the trees, both the original and the wild transplants, had failed and had all grown only poor fruit. Bitterly disappointed, the lord of the vineyard wept and said unto the servant, What could I have done more for my vineyard? The master determined to burn all of the trees in the vineyard since all had given only evil fruit. Again, the servant begged to wait just a little longer, and the master was persuaded, being reluctant to lose the vineyard he loved so much. The master decided to cut out those branches of wild olives that he had grafted onto the mother tree that gave the most bitter fruit and replaced them with branches from the daughter trees that had grown from the previously transplanted cuttings. The master hoped that by bringing the branches and the roots of the mother tree back together again with the good fruit of the wild branches that the tree would grow good fruit. The master and his servant worked hard in the vineyard. They cut out the branches that brought forth evil fruit and burnt them and pruned and nourished the trees and dug the ground. After much hard work, there was no longer any bad fruit in the vineyard. Essentially, the story is about a man trying to save the tree that he loves deeply. It is a story about wholeness, about unity through diversity, about the unscrupulous ways of divine action, and about the spiritual power of wild things. Welcome to Season 2 of Bristlecone Firesides, casual conversation around a virtual fireside about faith, the earth, the universe, and everything. In this second season, we will be journeying into the spiritual wilds as we explore the theme of wilderness. Joining us around our virtual fireside will be some familiar voices, as well as some new guests, to help us rediscover the spiritual power of wild things. We are your hosts, Abby and Madison. Bristlecone Firesides is recorded in the tiny carpet-covered attic of the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance, who is our partner for this and future seasons. For more info about SUA and the fight to protect Utah's stunning Red Rock wilderness, visit SUA.org. You know, we try and keep it pretty casual. You know, it's a fireside conversation, right? So like the best conversations you tend to have are around a campfire underneath the stars with your friends. We were talking about God, the universe and everything. And you're also like, can you pass me the, the chocolate, please?
And so we're talking about big things and also like small things and, and whatever. So we want to keep the kind of the friendly casual atmosphere. Um, so let's start off with some guest intro. Um, uh, Clint, let's start with you and then we'll go to Deidre. Um, give us just a little bit of background into who you are, what you do. And, uh, you know, at what point in your life did you realize that the earth was something that you cared about and if there was an exciting experience? Okay, so um, I'm a professor of biology at BYU. I'm in the biology department. Um, <clears throat> my background is in plant genetics, so I'm interested in understanding genetic mechanisms of development and how those how those mechanisms evolve to give differences in morphology and make you know make the world diverse and interesting. Um, so that's what I do academically. I teach field botany and plant diversity. And these are kind of courses that are not necessarily in my training, but that I really, I'm, I'm privileged to be able to teach them because then I get to go out and look at plants all the time. So my motto for that is, uh, I think all the world's problems in purport, all the world's problems will be solved in proportion to the amount of time we all spend looking at plants. Oh my and gosh. yeah, I, I I, I, say it, I say it to convince myself, but I'm already convinced. So anyway, uh, I, I don't know when I, when I started falling in love with the earth, I guess, you know, it's maybe when I woke up to plants, when my parents forced me to garden, you know, uh, which wasn't fun. I just had to go out there and weed, but I just became fascinated with the fact that you can put a seed which just looks like a little dead thing in dirt and you add water and then right this thing grows out it's like what is going on there that's amazing um i had a a, a brief foray as an undergraduate thinking i was going to be a going to go to medical school but luckily people um convinced me that wasn't for me and so i went back to yeah what my what my love was which was plants and i've been going with it ever since Thank you. Deidre? That's amazing. Um, well, I clearly don't fit in this conversation as well as anyone else here. Um, I mean, I'm trained as a philosopher and theologian. I specialize in the thought of the 19th century Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. Um, and I'm also uh, heavily invested in feminist theologies, feminist philosophy of religion. Um, so not a lot of my work focuses on environmentalism, but I was raised in the Monterey Bay area, just uh, not too far from Santa Cruz. So I spent a lot of time in nature as a kid, and I definitely was raised to think a lot about conservation and, and protecting the earth. And since the time I was a child, um, I feel like being in the outdoors, being in nature has been a place where I've had a sense of communion with God. Um, which as a spiritual person, as a religious person, and certainly as a theologian is important to me. Um, yeah, so that's, that's that. Well, no, I'm just really excited that you're here. So as much as you think you don't fit, um, that's a lie. Even just last episode, we were talking about Kierkegaard. <laughs> so it'll be nice to, to have a philosopher on the he call always, as well. He's a, he always shows up in our window berries, <laughs> Kierkegaard, whatever. We're all talking about all of them all the time. <laughs> yeah. We um, like the diversity. <laughs> yeah. So when Abby and I were putting together season two, so the theme of season two is, is wilderness. Um, and, uh, so I, when we were putting together, you know, concepting well, what episodes, we, what, what topics do we want to cover this season? 
Um, I knew immediately that we needed to cover Jacob five in the book of Mormon because, uh, it's a really striking allegory of the olive tree that utilizes wildness, um, in really curious ways, ways that are a little counterintuitive. Um, and, uh, that wildness is the thing that kind of saves the olive tree, God's olive tree. And it's really a, it's not something you would expect to come from the book of Mormon. Um, and so I knew that, uh, that is something that we needed to, to, yeah. uh, to talk about. And Deidre, you wrote, uh, the a brief theological introduction to the book of Jacob with the Maxwell Institute. And I read through that and I knew that we needed to have you on. And then you suggested to bring on Clint as well because of his background with, with plants and trees. Um, and so let's, let's jump into this, but before we get to the, the actual olive tree, let's talk, um, Jacob. You in in the Jacob the prophet when you uh, in the first chapter you of your book you you go to lengths to to give some background into who Jacob is and that you come he's a kind of a boy of the wilderness he was the firstborn of Lehi and Sariah in the wilderness um, and so I know we we can't separate the parable of the Lord's of the the olive tree from the prophet Jacob so what is it important that we know about Jacob in his relationship to wilderness. Yeah, so Jacob is definitely the child of the wilderness, as I point out in the book, in the original and printer's manuscript of the Book of Mormon, uh, not the version that uh, we normally read today. Um, Jacob emphasizes at the end of his book that he and his people were born in a wild wilderness. Um, So he really wants to underscore this theme of wildness. And of course, we see it in different ways throughout the book that he writes. But the theme of wilderness is extremely important um, in the Old Testament, um, and Jacob really brings it into the Book of Mormon as well. And the wilderness is seen as a place of ambiguity, um, certainly a place of uncertainty, right? It's a place that's uncivilized and untamed. Um, And it's a really important trope within the Old Testament and within the Book of Jacob as a sort of space for transformation, a space where we become in relationship to God, a space where we recognize our vulnerability and our dependence on God and our need for interdependence. And so I think that Jacob's um, very early awareness um, of his own vulnerability, um, given the fact that he's born in wilderness and that's his primary experience of life, um, really factors in and shapes his view of the world and his prophetic view and how how he writes his text. Now that's very interesting. Um and I when I was reading through that first chapter I couldn't help but feel that like Jacob has some Franciscan sensibilities. I don't know if you're familiar with, you know, St. St. Francis uh that so I read a book this summer about St. Francis. Um, and there are just a lot of parallels in kind of the Franciscan, uh, you know, view of sin as a social phenomenon and his concern for the poor and the marginalized. And I definitely felt that in, you know, your first chapter of breaking down who Jacob was, that he's kind of got this Franciscan way about him, that he cares a lot about the people who are on the edges of society. Yeah. And I mean, I would say that that's really, um, just a prophetic view of the world right? It's a, it's a godly or Christian view of the world. Um, and it's a way of approaching theology that's much broader, right? Than just figures like Francis um, and Jacob. Um, but it's not one that I think culturally we've thought enough about um, within the 200 years that Mormonism has been around. Um, 
And so we haven't necessarily picked up on that sensibility um, within the Book of Mormon, you know, because of the lens that we bring to the text. And so um, part of what I was trying to accomplish in my book was um, giving a different reading of the text, right? That I think is there, um, but I think we overlook. And certainly, um, I mean, lots of contemporary theologians, lots of feminist theologians um, are really invested in this view of um, paying attention to the margins, um, thinking about sin in these social terms. And I think we see it in the Old Testament and New Testament um, for sure. Um, but culturally, we haven't always um, brought the right lens to see that as clearly as I think we should. It's so fun to have Deidre um, here because she thinks so differently than I do about, about everything. Um, so I like the way she's, I just made a couple of notes here, the way she's associating the wild and the wilderness with vulnerability and the margins and sort of the unseen the unseen sociality that we have a responsibility to somehow, right? Um, so from my perspective, I think there's a lot maybe to explore at some point here about what is visible and what is invisible um, in terms of wildness and the tamed, right? What, what we can make sense of and what we can't make sense of because we can't even conceive of it. It's just so either so other or just so un not understandable. It's just not um, of the nature to be understood. That's kind of what I think of as wild. So, yeah. Abby, you have any thoughts? Well, I mean, I'm sure we'll get into it, but it is interesting to consider, um, you know, the nature of the olive tree itself as a wild, you know, a wild tree um, or a wild plant in and of itself, but then is later domesticated. Can you hear me? Sorry. Pushing the mic a little closer. <laughs> okay. Um, but just, the, yeah, the process of taming it, um, and I'm sure, uh, Clint, you'll get into this too, but just, you know, the, the actual mechanisms that are required in order to do so. Um, and I'd never kind of philosophized over the, the perhaps, you know, religious implications of that, that metaphor. Um, and that's the point of us being here today. So I'm really excited to get into this discussion. Yeah. Cool. And let's just jump into the Lord and the olive tree. Um, I think one of my favorite paragraphs, um, from your book, Deidre was, uh, it comes in that, in that chapter about the olive tree, um, and quote, I'm going to quote this right here. It says, uh, Jacob depicts God as one who is entangled, related, and implicated in the world's becoming. In this dynamic, God's powers manifest through God's intimate connectedness to creation. I love that. Um, I think that, you know, when we're talking, when we break down kind of the allegory of the olive tree, we need to understand two things. And one, we need to understand the Lord of, of the vineyard. We understand that the, the, this allegory gives us a really unique lens into who God is and how he operates with us. And then the second thing is we need to like understand what the olive tree is and the kind of the symbolism there. And so I thought we'd start by talking about who is the God that we find in this parable? What, like, how is God or how is Jacob describing God to us and how is he presenting the Lord of this vineyard to us? Um, and, uh, so I, I, first I'd like to ask Deidre, if you could, um, unpack this quote for us. 
Sure. Yeah. So I agree that the image of God we get from this allegory is really surprising, right? It's counterintuitive in terms of some of the traditional um, notions we have of God uh, from the Christian tradition, right? As someone who acts sort of unilaterally, as someone who's omnipotent um, and just brings to pass God's own will um, independently of others. So we have a view here <laughs> of a God who not only is reliant on human beings, right? And reliant on Christ working together interdependently to bring to pass God's will for the vineyard, for creation, but also a God who doesn't seem to know uh, what the outcomes of God's actions will be, right? And so this is really surprising that there's this sort of experimentation taking place, right? Which really speaks to the level of human agency that's of play in the worldview of the Book of Mormon. Um, that God is experimenting and innovating um, and seeing what human beings will respond to. Um, and I think that that's a really humbling um, and profound view of God, that God is working with creation and paying attention to the responsiveness of creation, right? That it isn't this sort of unilateral um, action that takes place. It's not just about a certain kind of um, efficacy, right? Um, <laughs> I mean, the picture, I mean, quite frankly, is in the view of like, um, a white, straight, um, highly educated <laughs> male, right? Who, who like decides what he wants to accomplish and goes out and does it, right? And so it's a really fascinating view that we we get in a number of different ways within the Book of Mormon um, of a God who's vulnerable and a God who's vulnerable in, in relation to humanity um, and to creation. So maybe I'll stop there for a minute. That's actually, that's my same reading as well. I mean, I'm coming at it from the perspective of a gardener uh, and I see a lot of, um, I'm, I feel pretty sympathetic with this notion of God just kind of, or the Lord of the vineyard, right? It doesn't say God per se, but I, I, we can make that, I think we can make that leap pretty safely, but the Lord of the vineyard is just goofing off, right? Has some notion of what he would like, would like some tasty fruit because that would be good but doesn't really know how it's going to happen, right? And so it's just playing around. Um, I, I particularly like the point where, the, <clears throat> where the, the servant in the vineyard comes and asks him, why did you put that thing over there? And, and God, or the Lord of the vineyard just says, counsel me not. Like, don't ask. And, and how I interpret that is just don't ask me for reasons because I don't have... I, implied there to me is I don't have, <laughs> I don't have reasons, right? This is, this is something where I'm, yeah, like Deidre said, this is, I, I am engaged with the created, uh, the created sphere and, and it's a, and it's a joint product, right? I, it's not a completely preordained, predestined plan that I just have to execute in time. <clears throat> something will emerge that, I cannot predict. Um, anyway, so that I, that is a, a very different notion of of God and of creation than we typically um, are comfortable with. 
I also kind of love that verse too, because uh, as a gardener myself, but kind of considerably novice um, in that area, <laughs> I don't know, you know, the, the makeup of the soil in my backyard. Right. But I do know, you know, where certain things grow better than others. And I think that's kind of um, maybe what, what this verse indicates also is we know the nuances of, of what we've experienced or the things that we have um, and, and what we have to work with, but we may not know, you know, the actual makeup or, um, you know, the, the, the very granular level of that, but we know what works or, um, you know, we know how to cultivate from what we have, I guess. We do, but we also sometimes don't like, usually it works to put this thing over here. Like a yeah. gardener knows usually it works to plant at this time of year and to, you know, to use this kind of fertilization technique. And usually it does. And then sometimes it doesn't. And so you, um, the best laid plans are always in a gardening situation are at some point gonna fail you. And, and I like that, that God isn't frustrated by that or the Lord of the vineyard is not frustrated by that, but just jumps right in and says, let's just play around. I'm just gonna throw it here. I'm gonna throw it there. Um, hopefully one of these takes and I'll learn from that. That's gonna add to my new sort of growing um, a sense of what this joint creation is. I love that idea that, you know, looking at God at God at play, right. In, in the vineyard um, that we're skipping a little bit in the interview and in the outline will come back, but um, there seems to be a radical humility that God has in his approach to working in the vineyard and that radical humility and wildness seem to be connected to each other that God has no ego about what he's doing in the vineyard to save this tree. He doesn't care about how things were done before. He doesn't care about tradition. He doesn't care about what his servants think. He's just going to do what needs to be done. Um, and yeah. he's going to do it almost wildly and, you know, defying explanation. And there, so I think there, there seems to be a relationship between wildness and some degree of radical humility of egolessness. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think what's clear um, in Jacob's use of the allegory is that God has this sort of desperate love for creation, right? This desperate love for humanity. And that is what motivates God to work relentlessly and tirelessly to salvage what, what God can. Um, and it's love that sort of outstrips every other concern um, or any other kind of limitation um, that, that would otherwise hinder the salvation of creation. Um, and yeah, I think it's a profound lesson in, in the kind of love that human beings are to engender in themselves and in each other. Yeah. And in that, um, in the, in your book, you talk about how you know, the atonement is also, also works on God to, to heal God's own broken heart. Right. And yeah. uh, you can see this, that, um, which I think is a really unique take on the atonement because we, I think we so traditionally think of the atonement as, as this thing that it only impacts human beings. And it's something that we have to receive. Right. And you, you talk about it, how it's a participatory thing and not necessarily a gift that we just have to receive. Um, but I love the idea that because throughout the, throughout Jacob five, like it is so obvious that God is grieved 
by the loss of yeah. by the sickness that's in this tree and it, it 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 pains him and it's just a tree like i know how many people in this world like during construction projects whatever just tear down trees willy-nilly but to have like the lord of the vineyard be so to make the, the pain of the tree his own pain um and then to be moved from that pain is really a striking um a striking image and then to think of the atonement as as working on god as well as us i think that's just beautiful beautiful imagery yeah thanks i mean i i would add to that that i think part of what's instructive um in the allegory is that god's love right can also teach us about the worth of creation i mean god's love for us also exceeds our love for ourselves right our own understanding of our own worth and the love uh the worth of others and and the rest of creation um and so i think that that's something that the atonement itself is really meant to teach us that that is the worth of a human soul but also the worth of every aspect of creation um that that sort of ultimate suffering um, is undergone in order to try and save it. So, so I'm struck here by a parallel with another theodicy or justification of God in the face of evil with the book of um, Jonah. So God is trying to teach Jonah that these people are like worthy humans or some are worthy creations that shouldn't just be destroyed. And the way he teaches Jonah that is he, um, plants a little plant next to him that grows over him in the sun and gives him some shade and then withers it up and dies. <clears throat> and Jonah goes like, not cool, God. That's not, he's like, see, you, you love that plant that's now dead. And for the same reason, right. You should, you should care for this creation that you've, that I, right. That I have been engaged with, right. You were just engaged with this plant for a short time, but um, I was engaged with these people for a long time. Anyway, it's interesting to me that there is this parallel um, uh, and they're both trying to help us understand the wild other and what is our, what is our responsibility to it? Hey all, thanks for joining us around the fireside to talk about things big and small. An important part of Bristlecone Firesides is putting our faith and spirituality in contact with the earth that unites us. So we'd love to keep in touch with you in the future, whether it's to share a simple call to action, send an occasional exclusive behind the scenes update, or ask you for your input on the future direction of Bristlecone Firesides. To stay in the loop, text us the phrase Fireside Utah to 52886. We won't fill up your messages, but when we do send you something, we promise it's gonna be good. That's F-I-R-E-S-I-D-E, Utah, to 52886. Um, I think, Deidre, what also I really enjoyed uh, in your kind of understanding of, of God in relation to his vineyard is that ultimately what God's after is wholeness not necessarily like perfection, um, which is a really, is a pretty, uh, probably different than most people's typical understanding of what God's up to in this universe and the purpose of the atonement. Um, why is this shift in God's goal powerful slash necessary? Uh, 
Uh, well, I mean, I don't think it's a shift in God's goal or our, um, our understanding a shift in of our, <laughs> a shift in our <laughs> understanding of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. It seems that God's goal is unification. Um, and to me, what's so profound about the way that Jacob um, gives us this allegory is the deep sense that aspects of creation that from our finite an imperfect human perspective we would see as expendable or disposable, right? God sees as absolutely indispensable. Um, and, um, right, what we might normally think about what's good and worth saving is actually unsalvageable with what we might normally discount, uh, right? And count as other. Um, from our finite perspective. And so I see this as a major theme in the Book of Mormon, of course, um, as I talk, to, I talk about ad nauseum <laughs> in the book. Um, but God sees that we are interdependent for our salvation um, and that part of gaining a sort of truly Christian vision of creation um, and of one another is that we come to see ourselves as interdependent and see all others as uh, indispensable as well. So, I mean, that naturally, right, leads to a sort of wholeness when we recognize that it's our integration, our unification um, that makes salvation possible um, at all. Right. And that it's not possible without that kind of integration and unification. Um, just to maybe complicate it, I'm curious what Deidre thinks because when I read the parallel or when I read the when I read Jacob five, there is some aspect of wholeness in terms of the wild and the natural fruit. But at the end, you get the sense that God just wants the natural, wants a really healthy, full natural, and the wild can be um burned up and i don't know how to i don't know how to read that in a way that i'm comfortable with yet so I, i'm curious if you have any thoughts about that yeah i mean i mean that's not how i read it right because the natural bringing about the natural fruit and allowing the natural trees to do what they're meant to do is not possible uh, within the allegory without the wild being grafted in um, and so, uh, it seems to be somewhat instrumental, right? You need the wild, mm. but then at the end, at the end, it, they've served their purpose and, and, and now we have what we want. You know what I mean? That's what I have some, that's what I have some difficulty with. I, I'm pretty sure in the text in Jacob five, it, the text goes out of its way to say that in fact, God specifically says not to remove the wild branches from the tree. They, although they've become naturalized yeah. to some degree. Right. And so I, like, I, I think we're going to get into this, uh, later on when we talk about the, uh, kind of the, the symbolism of the olive tree, but it is certainly, um, an interesting, uh, aspect of wholeness, right? Because I think what I hope that we will get into is there's a difference between like uniformity and unity, right. Mm -hmm. And that, and that, that unity might be something more like diversity protected so that we can unify, right? That God splits the light and the darkness before he, you know, when he creates his first act of creation is to, is to split 
reality into a binary. And then through that binary, we can reachieve some form of, of unification. Right. And so I think that, I think that that will be helpful that as, as we, as we, you know, talk about what wholeness means, wholeness, I don't think means this kind of milieu of like oneness or sameness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, you're definitely challenging me, Clint. I'll have to think more about this. Um, I mean, I don't have a sense that there is so much a sort of instrumentalization. Um, I mean, I see it as more emphasizing the essentiality of, of the wild. Um, I mean, that's my, that's my take on it. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it at that for right now. Well, let me come back actually to the point you made about Jonah, um, just because I think to further the sort of metaphor, um, right, is that part of what Joseph's meant or Jonah is meant uh, to learn from this gourd, right, that uh, that appears that that God provides and then takes away, is again like this idea that these relationships are not just unilateral, right? Because Jonah has this sense that he has to sort of go on this mission to these people that he hates and is terrified of. Um, and that that's some, he has to be some sort of savior figure. And if the gourd is somehow meant to be symbolic or metaphorical of his relationship um, there, then part of what he's meant to learn is that the, the relationship is bilateral, right? It's, it's pointing towards that sense of interdependence that I think is very much a play um, in Jacob five. And that's what I get as sort of the overarching theme is not that there are certain um, individuals or parts of the in, of the vineyard that are just sort of uh, instrumentalized and naturalized, but that the difference itself is essential. And that that's what we're meant to appreciate and that it's, um, a reciprocal sort of relationship. Yeah, I, I can buy that. I just pulled it up again really quick. And 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 everyone's right. Most of it is about, it's this really long chapter. It's enormous, right? And the overwhelming majority- <laughs> It's unruly. It's wild. <laughs> it's un, unruly. It's wild on its own, right? And, and most of it is about the constant interplay of the wild and the natural and the wild and the natural. It's really only the last verse. And it never happens. It says- eventually I'm going to have this final split, right? And the good will be saved and the evil will be kind of removed. Um, yeah. So anyway, yeah, I, I think the overall take-home message is maybe not that last little verse, right? The overall take-home message is all of this, um, this interweaving that happens um, because that's where the majority of the text is. So that's where I think we should really be putting our where we should be looking. Yeah. Yeah. Well then let's just jump into it. What is the story of the tree? Just high level 10,000 foot. Like what is the story of, of the tree? Don't look at me. <laughs> <laughs> it's all you Clint. Clint you got the, you got <laughs> the moment open. <laughs> yeah. No, I, 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 I'll, I'll, I'll just tell you one way to think about it. Cause I don't think there is a story obviously, right? This is, this is an allegory so we can take it whichever way we, we, we feel appropriate to take it at the time. Um, I like this notion that what God wants is something yummy, 
right? God wants something, and 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 to use sort of use um, Deidre's uh, characterizations here, He wants something that He can be in relationship with. Um, and it's easier to be in relationship with something that's tame than it is to be in some with something that's wild. Like if you've watched Tiger King, right? Um, <laughs> you want to be in relationship with those cats, but you know <laughs> you can't in the end because they're still wild. Yeah, you, you, uh, you have to. If we're going to have a relationship, um, we have to domesticate it somehow. But that doesn't mean completely. Anyway, that's that's the core of the ambiguity and the depth of this, I think, right, is is exploring what that is, because I think you might want to just kind of remove all of that wildness and evilness and all of it and just have the good. Um, but it starts right off from saying that when when we had this really good tree with really good fruit, it became fragile and it was not healthy. And so it had to have this constant influx from the wild. Um, but at the same time, the wild on its own is not something that um, we can be in a close relationship with, um, but we need it. Uh, so I love that tension and thinking it through. <clears throat> I don't know that there's a clean sort of explanation for how we actually, how we actually solve that right? How we actually make it all work. And that's, and, and again, this is the depth of the text. Maybe the way we make it work is we just play. We just try things out and we're going to make a lot of mistakes, but maybe we'll happen upon some relationship or some way of interacting with the wild that is fruitful in a new way we hadn't seen before. And, um, and that will be really productive and we'll be glad we did it. Yeah. Abby, any thoughts? I just um, was thinking about an article I read about um, like olive trees and anthropologically how even now um, in olive groves, they can't necessarily distinguish between, well, I mean, they can, but it's very difficult to distinguish between wild um, and domesticated olive trees um, because there's not, you know, huge differences other than like the fleshiness of the actual fruit. Um, and they determined that, you know, this could be because, um, you know, there was heavy domestication of, of most olive trees, at least in the Mediterranean region. Um, and so I just have been thinking about that as we've been talking about wholeness that, you know, even now, um, you know, maybe hundreds of years later that it's almost indistinguishable that one cannot be without the other. Um, and at least in this particular region where they've done these kind of anthropological studies and, and um, trying to determine, uh, you know, whether or not these, these specific groves have been domesticated previously. Um, but I kind of think Clint, um, and this is what I'm gleaning from what you're saying that, you know, there is almost no way to, uh, separate them out or, um, perhaps have one without the other. Um, and that this maybe contributes to the sense of wholeness that's felt in the end of that, that chapter. Um, and maybe I'm, you know, putting words in your mouth, Clint, but that's kind of what I'm, what I'm taking from this as well. Um, that, you know, it, it requires these two parts, um, maybe not equally and, and, um, you know, in, indistinguishably, but, but that 
both are necessary in kind of conducting, um, you know, a, a healthy, a healthy tree or, or producing a healthy fruit, I guess. Yeah, I like that. Um, maybe something else I would say is that in, insofar as like um, God is, is emblematic of a designed, planned, rational approach to things, and that that the products of 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 God's activity would be right, planned, and so forth. That there's something fragile about that in the end, right? The more you um, the more you domesticate something, and the more you um, and bring it into the easy, good, happy, whatever the thing you really desire. Um, yeah, the, the, the more vulnerable it becomes. <clears throat> and so, and so what really gives it's fragile, unstable, but what, but what really vivifies it is the, um, is the, is the unknowable, un, um, domesticated wildness, right? Um, anyway, I just I just love that reimagination of where creativity comes from, right? That creativity doesn't come from the sitting down and thinking and planning. The creativity comes from the opening to um, to randomness, to to just the um, the unseen wild network that is that is the actual source of creativity, right? I don't know, but they're both necessary. It's not like one's more important than the other, but um, I like that it um, it takes our typical anthropocentric notions of where of what is design and creation and um, and opens it up to the wild. Yeah, I think we see. Yeah. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Oh, well, I, I was just gonna. Now I'm just thinking. Wheels are turning, you know, and I, I think we see larger parallels to this in creation too, and I mean general creation, you know. And I'm thinking of. Um, the way that we learn about creation in the temple um, and, and thinking about maybe this as being a larger allegory for the imminence and the transcendence of God, that there's kind of both at play. We don't see God crafting every single element of the earth. He creates, you know, each day um, that day's worth of creation, right? And then calls it good, but then he kind of allows it to blossom and flourish on its own. And that, that, you know, that element of creativity is not just his initial creativity of the creation of those things, but then it, he allows for the creativity of, you know, those different elements to work together and produce something good as well. Um, and so now I'm just thinking, you know, as a, as a even larger allegory of these things um, that represent creation and, and God's kind of imminence, but also transcendence. In Jacob five, he walks away for long periods of time. <laughs> it's very explicit, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. So I think this aspect um, of the sort of unknowability, right, or un unknownness. Of, of the wild is really important, um, that God is confronted with novelty, right? And within the LDS tradition, of course, um, historically, right, there's been theological debates about what it means to say that God is progressing um, and whether God is progressing, right? And how we would define that. 
Um, and I think that this is a really important point, right? To me, what it would mean for God to progress is that God is continually confronted with new forms of creation that God does not necessarily design or control, right? But that have been set in motion and they come about. God encounters novelty uh, within creation. Um, and God loves all of creation, right? And I see that actually as a really deep parallel for how we are to learn to love like God loves, right? And like Christ loves, is that as human beings, we encounter new forms of creation, right? Or new kinds of difference. Um, and that we figure out how to love it and how to be inclusive uh, with it, right? And, and to go even further to see our dependence and our interdependence with different forms of creation, right? So, um, so it's that sort of encountering what's unknown and what's novel and then learning how to relate to it in a way that God does. No, I think that's fantastic. And that's something that we've come back to again and again this season is that that God is embedded in this whole experience with us, right? That, you know, that's what Emmanuel, God with us, right? Um, and that, uh, that the universe, the universe and God and humans are all agents in their own respect. And the reality is, is some you know, confluence of all three agents acting. Um, and I think that we, we really get that in this, in this allegory of the olive tree, that God has to work with the wildness of reality the same way we do. Um, and that sure God might have some mystical superpower or whatever, but like he still has to work with it. Um, and that, uh, and that it's his, his embeddedness in it makes him more approachable, makes God more approachable, I think for us. Um, yeah. Yeah, and a further implication of the allegory is that God is reliant on us um, to figure out how to bring this unification about, right? That like you're pointing out is not a sort of um, amalgamation, right? It's not just sort of dissolving difference, but it's about how, how to live um, at one with difference. And, and that's something that we figure out in relationship with God. We're not, we aren't necessarily just instructed about how to do that, but God is reliant on human beings using their agency uh, in appropriate ways to sort out how that unification takes place. Let's talk about the tree itself. Um, I know that there are as many interpretations of the tree, the fruit, the branches, the roots is like there are human beings, right? Um, but like, let's just um, high level. I think um, the fruit we've kind of talked about, you know, it could be that God is just after something tasty, right? Or the fruit could literally just be, you know, the the, the pros or the cons or the goodness or the, the badness of said approach or of, of the, the roots of the branches. Um, do you guys have any thoughts on what the fruits, the fruit could be representative of? Or is it just pretty straight? You mean the tree, right? Yeah, the fruit of the tree. Or the, I mean, oh. let, let's talk maybe the tree, the tree at large of what the tree itself, and then we can break it down into its bits. Go for it, Deidre. Deidre, I don't. 
you thought about this. I mean, I know there's the traditional interpretation that the tree is like the house of Israel or something like yeah. that, right? And and I think that's fine. But um, it's fine. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm sure there's got to be some, um, yeah, some other ways to think about this. I mean, I would think about it more expansively and more broadly, right? Like certainly the tree is meant to be symbolic of um, of what the covenant brings about, right? So it is symbolic of Israel. Um, but my sense is that the allegory is meant to point us towards a much more expansive notion of what that means, right? And we often tend to think about um, the covenant or defining Israel in ways that are quite exclusive. Um, and it seems to me that the allegory is really pointing us to a much broader vision um, of what it means to fulfill covenant. Maybe another um, thing to add is there's something about trees that are um, given in a way that annual plants are not. So annual plants come and go, come and go, come and go, but trees last, right? They, they have some sort of structure that, that allows them to continue on, but they're still not eternal, right? Um, they do come and go, but, but they have a sort of duration that's usually longer than our lifespans. And so they're given to us. And, and then we have to somehow care for them and pass them on to, to the next generation, right? Uh, so we have a role of digging about and fertilizing, right? And, and somehow tending the garden, but, um, but it's not the same as planting wheat where, right, if this generation goes bad, it doesn't matter. I get to start over again next year. There's, there's some longer duration there that we have to take into consideration. Anyway, what, what would that be? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> what, well, what do you think? I mean, I think what you're pointing to, though, is that, again, that sense of indispensability, right? That, that God doesn't see this as just, you know, better luck next time, right? We can, we can try again with another crop next year. But this vineyard, right, this tree has to be saved. Um, and so I think really, uh, I mean, I guess how I would kind of sum up what I tried to accomplish in the book is to think about the vineyard, to think about the, the trees that God, are, God is saving as the sort of incarnation of atonement, right? That it's everything that atonement is meant to affect, right? The total unification and the total salvation um, of creation in this very holistic sense, right? While preserving the difference. That's very, tr it makes me, there's another, uh, there's tons of trees, right? In, in kind of Judeo-Christian symbolism, but like the tree of life that, you know, if, if the trees are meant to represent the unification of all things, then, well, that includes, that includes tree, like actual trees along with humans and animals and the, the world, the earth that we're on, right? That, that it is, the tree itself is, is a, is a symbol of the sum totality of everything, um, that God has a hand in, in working with, which I, I really, I really like that it's very, the tree is itself a community, which I know that, you know, in, in nature, trees are communities, trees, you know, only can exist by, by nature of the communities that they're embedded in. And it's right. a little bit more expansive, but 
also now we consider all of life to be a family tree, right? So it's a phylogenetic tree. Um, so, so all of creation came from a single common ancestor, right? And spe the speciation events, which created the various lineages, which are, you know, the tree of life, those are our literal brothers and sisters, if you will, right? So that's another way, um, a little bit more removed, right? But another way in which certainly not something that uh, Zenas was thinking about. Maybe, I don't know, maybe, maybe he was, but- How do you uh, know? Maybe he was. <laughs> How do I know, right? I mean, maybe he was. <laughs> <laughs> no, I like I like thinking of the of the tree as as community, right? The, on whatever level, whether it's the House of Israel or whether it's the the Mormon community or our Utah community or you know the American community, that on whatever level, I think that the tree represents community, and we can read into it whatever layer of community we want or we need to. And I think that the the the, the allegory would still hold the same. Um, and so in the, in the, the allegory, you know, God has this tree and then he notices, oh, it's sick. The fruit is bad. Um, and then what he does is he instructs the servants to remove branches, um, and to remove the natural branches, which he, he burns and scatters, uh, throughout the vineyard at God's discretion. Um, and so I want to talk about the, some of the branches. Does it seem counterintuitive for God who grieves at the withering tree to further split up the tree and burn parts of it? Um, this seems especially counterintuitive when God directs the, the, the pruning of the, the main branches. So my question would be, who or what are the main branches of our communities? And how can we <laughs> see God splitting up the main branches and burning them? I mean, that's very, it's very striking, very powerful. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's whatever, whatever group feels like their um, interpretation of God's plan and, and how things are all supposed to work out. They feel like that is the most correct, right? Maybe those are the main branches. I don't know. Right. Um, or any group that does feel like they've got a hold on um, what it means to, to be God's true community. Um yeah, that seems to me like that's a fairly um, a fairly dangerous place to be. Uh, that you're ripe for some um, splitting and grafting at that point. <laughs> Got anything, Abby? Well, I'm just thinking of like a tree itself, and obviously this interpretation has been heard many times. But a, a, a tree that's not cultivated will produce more fruit than it has nutrients to actually provide the fruit, right? So um, it will just yield gross fruit, but the fruit will still be there. <laughs> um, and I think like in some ways, this pruning of the main branches and then the burning um, and then kind of rescattering is, is essential for um, like repurposing, I guess, um, is that like if something no longer serves you, um, then instead of, you know, discarding it entirely, at least it's being repurposed in a way that, you know, those nutrients will be, um, absorbed or put to use elsewhere. Um, and so I don't, I don't know that the main branches are necessarily something that completely go to waste or, or kind of, um, fall by the wayside, I guess, entirely that, that there's something kind of resourceful or beautiful about them being 
burned and then, you know, utilized for that purpose. Well, I mean, ashes are, ashes yeah. are fertilizing and I can't help but imagine that probably in this allegory that when the, they dunged the tree, that there was some utilization of maybe the ashes of these burned main branches, right? Because ashes are incredibly nutrient, nut or fertile, fertilizing, fertilizing. Yeah. And that like something that was once kind of cumbersome then becomes purposeful or like, um, uh, helpful and, and, um, yeah, I, purposeful again to the tree. Mm-hmm. I don't know what to make. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> well, I mean, it's a major theme within the book of Mormon itself. Um, certainly within, uh, the old Testament or Hebrew Bible and the Christian new Testament as well. Right. Is that there's, the exalted are abased, right? And the abased are exalted. Um, and this is a sort of like incarnation of that, that we see in this sort of physical metaphor of the tree. And as I draw out in the book, right? Jacob is at pains to um, show the self-righteous Nephites that actually the Lamanites that they see as the quintessential other, right? The paradigmatic sinners um, are actually outshining them, right? In the way that they are, um, comporting themselves in terms of family life. And in order for the Nephites to fulfill the covenants um, that they sort of pride themselves, right, on being a part of, they're going to have to look to the people that they despise, right, in order, as exemplars, in order to do that. Um, And so I see that as a real parallel to what's, what's happening here right that there is this sort of repurposing um right but but it requires this absolute abasement and humility of those that are in this sort of privileged place right that sort of naturally have access um and that they have to be willing to learn even from from the quintessential other right from those that are the paradigmatic sinners and i think that that's something we have to take very seriously thinking about what that means for us in the 21st century. Um, What would be the parallel and what would that look like? And recognizing that the salvation, right? Or the sort of evolution even of the Latter-day Saint community may come from outside, right? Maybe come from a willingness to look to communities that we see as others that we think that we think we have nothing to learn from that actually that might be the very way that we learn about love and how to live our own covenants. Yeah, that's powerful. Um, especially because I think that the world that we live in right now has just been so polarized in a lot of ways that it's like everyone has become the other, like the evil other, right. That me and my ethno group are, are the main, the main branches, but everyone else is, is suspect to some degree. And that's just the, our world has pushed our, uh, each other to the edges. Um, so my question would be who or what are the wild branches today? You know, I know at, at large, we could say in our, our American community, or we could say more specifically in our, in our Mormon community, who or what are the wild branches? Who are the people on the margins? <laughs> so I, I'll just, throw in there. I think that's a great question. Um, I think it's whoever we can't see, right? Whoever we're, we are blind to, um, right? Um, and maybe and maybe a step up from that is maybe we can see them, but we don't, we would rather we didn't <laughs> have to see them, 
Um, but 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 I would just add to that maybe I imagine well anyway I won't I won't presume about who listens to this podcast or doesn't but um, everyone listens to this podcast <laughs> often it's easy to see it's easy, it's easy to preach who who everyone else should be open to right mm-hmm. but I think I think it's important to say who who can I not right now who can I not be open to right and why can I not be open to them right. Um, and those are those are really um, hard questions, right? Uh, so I think it would be easy, maybe for us right now, to have a discussion about the ways the you know the traditional or your traditional Mormon might need to be open to different things, and that may be very true. Um, but is that um, is that what this this group or this uh, this podcast uh, listenership is? It really needs the most. I don't know. It's a good question. I really like that. And I would add to that, that it's not only the group that you don't see or wish you didn't see, but also the group that you think you have nothing to learn from. Right. And I think that that is really key in terms of what's at play in the book of Jacob, specifically in the book of Mormon overall. Um, And it's a pattern we see in the way that Christ teaches in the new Testament as well. Right. Taking the person right that is essentially outcast and making them the embodiment of some christian principle right some christian ideal and so i think that is often right really hard and i think part of what clint is pointing to is especially for people who right want to consider themselves very progressive or very woke that sometimes the tables turn and we become unable um, to learn from, from lots of different sources, right? And we just kind of tune out. And I think part of what we're supposed to see in this allegory is that we can learn about Christianity. We can learn about atonement. Um, we can learn about Christian love um, from sources, both unexpected and unexpected, and that we have to stay open and part of what it means to be open to God, open to revelation, open to the workings of the atonement is being open to all others. Right. Yeah, that's and that's excruciating, right? That's <laughs> right. Which is part of what you're describing, what we're seeing, right? That's so difficult. It's so painful. Um, but it's, it's, it's hard for progressives as well, well right? It, it it's, ties, it's it, hard for people who fancy themselves woke as well. It's something that we're constantly wrestling with in different forms. It, it ties back to that radical humility that God has in his approach to the vineyard, that God is unscrupulous in his approach to uh, how to take care of this thing. And that he frankly doesn't care what approach or who, who helps him out. Like, and that is a, that's a lesson that we need to learn, right? Like I know speaking for myself candidly, like, yeah, it's really hard for me to work with like conservative white boomer people, right? To to like and like <laughs> to me, they are the other. And that yep. maybe, maybe what the this allegory is telling me is that that there are lessons there that I need to learn in my in that that I can't just cut them out and that I need right. to I need to have some radical humility <laughs> in how I approach right, because them. the wild can't live without the natural either. Yeah. Right. And they're both lessons. Right. However you identify, whatever you kind of see as the allegory representing at the end of the day, 
it's a mutual interdependence Damn and it. it's an equal sort of interdependence. <laughs> and that is painful, it's right? So painful. That is a pill to swallow, <laughs> but that is the, that is the pill that God is swallowing. Right? He swallows it every day. And he has to swallow as well. That's the bitter cup. That's right. Um, but I mean, it is right. And yeah. that is, I mean, I, like I said, I see this allegory is most essentially about the atonement. Yeah. And the fact that Christ is willing to suffer ultimately to bring everyone together, right? The proud and the humble, right? The paradigmatic quintessential other and the most central figures, right? And that's our, that's our bitter cup too in its own way. I have a question here. I, 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 I can see the people that I don't want to see because I know who they are because they make me uncomfortable and I don't want to deal with them and I would rather they just went away, right? So I, I can be aware of that, but I wonder if any of you have any thoughts of how, how any practices that, that might be available to us to, to become open to the things we're not even seeing, right? Because that's, that's probably... I don't know which is more crucial, but that's that's an important part of this as well, right? That there's things we're just we just can't even we the unknown unknowns, <laughs> as, as what's his name um, anyway? He just died. Rumsfeld, yeah, as Rumsfeld used to say. Anyway, it, it, I'd be curious if you have any thoughts because I don't know that I have anything helpful on that, but yeah. Well, the Book of Mormon has thoughts about that. I think right. So from my perspective the two figures that seem to be uh, other than Christ, of course, that are especially transformative um, in the Book of Mormon are Sherem and Abish. And of course, Sherem has had a bad rap as an, one of the antichrists, but as I argue in my book, right, Jacob never labels him that way. And I actually see Sherem as this essential figure in the reconversion of the Nephites and the telling that Jacob gives us in Jacob 7. And we see this in uh, among the Lamanites, right, it's Abish that has this same sort of transformative effect, right? And there are two figures that in a sense sort of come out of nowhere, right? They're, they're illegible, they're kind of unseen. We don't have a real clear sense of even how to define them, right? The Book of Mormon is really concerned with ethnicity, right, and defining groups, um, and Sherem and Abish are two that kind of elide the sort of binaries, the ethnic binaries of the Book of Mormon. And in different ways, they kind of are in the shadows or sort of come out of nowhere. Um, but they are the ones that have this sort of transformative effect within the Book of Mormon. And so I think this really speaks uh, to what Clint is pointing at, that it's there's something really profound happening in the Book of Mormon where the figures that are largely responsible for Nephite reconversion and for Lamanite conversion um, are these figures that we can't quite define, right? <laughs> they kind of um, really express and embody this sort of illegibility or this sort of unknownness, right? Unknowability um, within the Book of Mormon. And I mean, definitely that's a matter of sort of personal reflection to think about what that means and how that translates um, into our own communities today. Um, 
but but these are the it's the it's the unknown it's the novelty right that introduces itself that becomes transformative in this very salvific way um and again i see that as really paralleled within this allegory that it's the wild it's what we can't quite define that is able to save the vineyard but at the same time i think you I, I agree with all of that um <laughs> Um, but, so I'm not trying, I'm not trying to say, go no. for it. But, um, this is what I do for a living. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Hit me with um, your best shot. Well, I, so how do we see the unseen? Um, you have to be in relationship with it. Right. Um, so, so there's lots, there's people you can't see and it's hard to be in relationship with them, but even the people you can see, that are, you do have a relationship with, there's so much about them that you are blind to, right? And what I'm, what I, what I'm struck by is that the only way you're going to start to have the veil or the scales pulled from your eyes is, um, is to just be in relationship with that person or that whatever. Um, it could be a landscape, it could be, an, it could be in anything, right? But to be in relationship with it, and and as much as possible to drop your um, your constraints or your needs or your whatever, right? To just let that phenomenon um, manifest itself as fully as possible to you, right? And and that will that will reveal. So I I just think of what it what it means to do good science. And in my experience, when you go to the phenomenon with a preconceived notion of what the answer is going to be it's it's a lot of frustration <laughs> and then when and then when you stop and take a step back and just sit with just be with the be with what is is emerging right um that's when you'll start to see things from uh see things that you weren't seeing before right so it you, but you still need both. You still have to. You, you still have to have some uh, way to engage. Um, but then you have to drop that off at some point and just let let people or let things be um, in ways that you wouldn't have been comfortable with before, or wouldn't even be have been aware of before. You, yeah. Absolutely. Without without defining it right as a way of sort of anticipating or controlling what's going to happen or predicting what's going to happen. And it's a way of living dialogically, right? It's a way of living in dialogue with the other, um, which again, I think is a major theme of the book of Jacob in general, right? And something that we see playing out in this allegory. It's a way of living dialogically. And it's what God or the Lord of the vineyard, right? Is exemplifying throughout this, right? God's engaging without knowing what the result is going to be. And God is responsive to whatever the actual result is. Yeah, I, I've been really enjoying this, this discussion. Um, and uh, I, I don't know if uh, either of you are familiar with a book called The Overstory by Richard Powers. Um, it is, uh, only one, of, a, only one of the best books ever written, ever, <laughs> ever, ever written, ever. Sorry, I sorry figured, but no, I'm a fan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, in the, in the beginning, uh, in the first chapter, um, I think it's the first chapter they, he, he, Richard Power, he goes through and he talks about the, the chestnut blight of 1904. Um, and so I just have a paragraph here that I'm going to read that I think, um, Clint, if you can help us deconstruct it, cause you have, you've come from an evolutionary background. Um, it says now the gods are dying. All of them, the full force of human ingenuity can't stop the disaster breaking over the continent. The blight runs along ridgelines, killing off peak after peak. Loggers race through a dozen states to cut down whatever the fungus hasn't reached. The nation forest service encourages them. Use the wood at least before it's ruined. And in that salvage mission, men kill any tree that might contain the secret of resistance. When I read that, it was I was really struck by that paragraph um, because I think what it does is it highlights that there's there's power in wild things and there's power in kind of this this uncontrollability, this like untamable landscape. And so, Clint, if you could help unpack kind of that that idea of of the in our in our mission to kill off the blight, we accidentally ruined any chance we have of of finding the secret of resistance. Yeah, I have a couple of things I want to say on that. So one is just, it's a pretty straightforward conservation biology uh, principle that uh, genetic diversity is resiliency, right? So if if you have genetic diversity, diversity in your population, chances are somewhere in there is going to be resistance to this blight that's around. But by trying to somehow make use of it, they they killed that all off and it, and it was gone. So that's one point. Um, but another point is <clears throat> that you don't, and I don't think this is necessarily Power's point, but it's related, um, is that you don't, you cannot predict what, what or where that useful mutation may be. And this is some really interesting, I think, more recent work in molecular biology, right? Where, where a mutation, the effect of a mutation so mutation is like a change in a DNA, right? And so that's going to lead to some effect on the organism, some phenotype, we would say. So you might think that a mutation happens and it leads to this phenotype, like maybe it's a, it's a mutation in a chlorophyll biosynthesis gene, and so you're going to be an albino um, plant or something like that, right? So we have this notion that a mutation leads to a phenotype, but what's becoming clearer and clearer is that what the organism shows as a result of the mutation is as much a result of the mutation as, as it is a result of the existing diversity of other genes that, that are present in the organism at the time. So this mutation in one genetic background will represent one way, but in a completely different genetic background, it will present an entirely different way, right? And so you just can never know, you can never understand the system well enough to predict what combination of things is gonna be useful. So, uh, so that's sort of very theoretical to take it down a level. Uh, when, you when you learn genetics, you learn about um, sickle cell trait right? So here is a mutation that's clearly not adaptive. The sickle cell trait is a mutation that caught, actually, I don't know the, the mechanism of it well enough, but the result is your, uh, your red blood cells don't form properly and it leads to a sickness, right? So that's clearly not useful. But in a certain context, 
it provides malarial resistance and it's very useful, right? And so they're, they're, the examples, I think that's not an unusual example. I think there's actually many situations and what appears to be a bad thing is only bad relative to the context in which it's placed, right? And, and, so, and so because of that, we cannot predict or know what's gonna be good and we have to cultivate and maintain as much wildness as possible to, to, to not shoot ourselves in the foot down the line. Yeah, I think, I think especially if we consider, you know, how God, God's approach to working with the vineyard, there's something evolutionary about it, right? Um, because I think the more I've learned about evolution, the more I, I see that evolution is also a really unscrupulous uh, uh, worker in the way that it kind of creates life and it will use anything and everything to, to accomplish its, its ends. I mean, it doesn't even really have ends, you know, per se, but, uh, uh, the whole idea that we're going to take something like a sickle cell and it will actually benefit you. So we're going to take whatever, whatever, whatever fruits we have, and we're going to use them towards ends that might could potentially be beneficial. I think that's really that I think we see the Lord of the vineyard is, is working evolutionarily in the vineyard. I think you said something pretty important there, which is that evolution doesn't have ends. Um, and I think that's actually key to its power because when you're selecting, thinking, you know, ahead of time, what's going to be useful, that's when you're going to get rid of the things that actually turn out to be the constraint breaking novelties, which really solve or solve a problem or, or create an entirely new domain in which to explore. That's, that's evolution's creativity and power is that it doesn't decide ahead of time what's useful. And it lets all of this stuff accumulate and accumulate and accumulate. And because it lets it accumulate, um, eventually some random conglomeration of things that on their own might've been deleterious turn out to be really novel and powerful. Yeah. And it goes back to your earlier point too, that if we try to keep exacting the same control over things, we're never going to allow for that creativity either. Um, so it's kind of that like relinquishing of control in that sense that allows for that, that creativity, but also that maybe those unforeseen elements to kind of take over or, um, or grow in that way. So, yeah, I think that's really interesting. Yeah. God is not manipulating freedom right within the allegory. And that's a, an instructive lesson for us as well, right? That we aren't to engage other freedoms in a manipulative way. And it seems as though God is trying to increase freedoms, uh, yeah, all along the absolutely. way that he's, he's all about increasing freedoms, um, his own freedom, the, the tree's freedom, his, his servant's freedom. Uh, I really see that. Um, I want to, we need to bring this to a close. Um, and I, I think that that idea that, you know, the power of, of evolution and wild things is that they don't have an end that they're working to, they'll just have everything and work with what they have. Um, I think there's something almost exciting about to think that maybe God is working a little bit that way. Um, but I, at the same time, I, I think it might be worth framing that the God's end quote that he's working towards is so expansive that it can hold 
this meaninglessness of this huge bandwidth of genetic, you know, quote, genetic diversity, right? That God, if God's end is, is wholeness, wholeness includes everything, which allows us, it enables the power of wildness while also providing room for the power of tameness. Right. You guys have thoughts on that? I think I would just, uh, endorse that. Yeah. Endorse the notion that, that maybe what we need to do, or maybe I'll just step back and say that that way of seeing creativity and that way of, of sort of envisioning God might, might leave you with uh, a sense of anxiety. We're getting back to Kierkegaard here, maybe a little bit, but it might, it might make, it might leave you. Right. But, but perhaps that's exactly where you need to sit. You, you, that's exactly what it means to, to participate in the atonement is to sit openly with that anxiety, right? And, and let it work itself through somehow. Amen. Yeah. To think about, to think about atonement as this sort of um, orchestration, right? Um, that is at play, that's, a, that's at work. Um, but not in a way that we can predict or anticipate and that it seems from the allegory, not even God can fully anticipate or predict, but God is relentless and tireless in bringing that orchestration to pass and bringing that unification to pass. And that that also is instructive, right? As an analogy for what human beings should aspire to, to that same sort of tirelessness and restlessness of willingness to engage with both tameness and wildness and bringing them together um, in this divine way that, that we can't yet necessarily foresee or anticipate. Abby, any final thoughts? No, I mean, I, I can't remember who said it, um, in conference in October, but it kind of along those same lines of, um, you know, the only way that we're ever going to make, uh, the church a safe place for everyone is allowing ourselves to feel uncomfortable. Um, because if we're not uncomfortable, then the only people that are at church are going to be people like us. Right. Um, and so I think that really lends itself to this idea of, um, allowing for that wildness to, to find a place within, you know, our, our churches and our communities, um, and also our conversations. So, I mean, just as kind of a way of, of rounding that out. I think that's a really important notion that we can all kind of draw with us. Did someone actually say that though? I feel like I, I'm like trying to remember who I it was and love I was trying it if to they Google said the source <laughs> and I think I've like I'm so glad you heard more, that. But... <laughs> I feel like I heard that in Elder Renlund's talk. I had to teach it for Elders Quorum last week. And I think I remember reading something along those lines, but I, I, I'd have to go back and check. Yeah. And that makes I, sense. I, I mean, it wasn't in <laughs> so many cut words. That I, but, <laughs> I, I wish you could see me furiously Googling. I'm like, who was it that said something like that? But um, yeah, maybe it was Elder Renlund or other Yeah, that would make a lot. Of I mean, and I feel like I, I mean, granted, I haven't paid terrible close attention to the last conference, but I feel like I did hear high level that there was a lot of, um, uh, of like hope for like unity. Right. And, uh, I think that 
you know, as we move into the f- into the future of you know the church, I think this allegory of the olive tree is going to be really useful because it it you know is like as a you know the the story kind of wraps up the pace of of the olive tree and the Lord's uh, efforts with it kind of quickens in the final verses of the chapter. Um, and there's kind of an excitement that, you know, the Lord of the vineyard is kind of excited. Like there's an excitement between him and the servants and, you know, they're making these final preparations, uh, for the, the, you know, the finalness of the olive tree. Um, and, uh, they, they bring together the, you know, there's this new, uh, I think the, the final image of the tree is what, you know, you say Deidre, which is this, this wholeness. And, uh, I'm particularly, um, caught with the idea that, like, like I mentioned at the beginning, that uniformity is not the same as unity and that uniformity is some kind of blah milieu where everyone is the same and it's all, it's all the, it's all one. Right. And not, but, but I think what we're after with atonement or at one man and unity is, is separate things coming together in new, That's right. in, new and, and what the ways. allegory is trying to teach us, right. Is that kind of uniformity actually stifles, right. And stymies creation. It actually gets in the way of the flourishing, right. The tree cannot survive. It stagnates. If that uniformity is all that's present, you have to preserve the difference, but bring it together in a certain kind of relationship, right. In order for survival and salvation to happen. Sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, that's fantastic. Yeah, and even maintaining those differences it is like a really important part that, like you said, it's not just becoming the same, but like retaining your differences and and that that's like the strength of that that coming together is that all of these things are different because it's not just, um, you know, a uniformity, but um, like something that's strengthened through that, um, those differing parts, I guess. Yeah. And it's essential. Yeah. Well, then final question, um, for Clint and Deidre, what are your hopes for the future of our community, both in relationship to the earth and what we might consider as the other? Okay. I'll start. Um, and I, and I started off with this, so I'll finish with it. My hope is that as a community, we will spend more time looking at plants. Yes. <laughs> Done. <laughs> I think that's that's our salvation. It, anyway, maybe we'll have a different conversation on that. But it, I kind of do believe that. So well, yeah. we might have to do. We might have to bring you on and do an, a, like an episode on plants at some future point. I mean, I don't really have anything to add to that. I think that's actually a really great place <laughs> to stop. But I mean, coming back to this idea that I've belabored, right? That um, that at the heart of the gospel is this sort of, as you put it so nicely, Madison, this radical humility, right? And as I talk about it, this willingness to learn from anyone, but to expand that, right? That we learn about God and we learn about the nature of reality and the nature of salvation history um, from the natural world, right? Perhaps even as much as we learn about it from other people and that that radical humility needs to extend there. Let anyone and everything become your teacher. I'm a big fan of that. 
Excellent. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation. Uh, Deidre, I've really, really uh, enjoyed your book, and I would recommend to anyone to definitely <laughs> read through it. Um, and uh, Clint, we'll have to have you on again, and we'll talk about plants and how plants are really the, the saviors of, the, of our relationship with the world. <laughs> I'll talk about plants with anyone at any time. Perfect. Open, open, <laughs> open invitation. Thank you for joining us in the Spiritual Wilds on this episode of Bristlecone Firesides. If you're vibing with this podcast, please share widely with your friends, family, and neighbors, and consider leaving us a five-star rating or written review through the podcasting app of your choice. Screenshot your review and tag us on Instagram or Twitter, and we'll hook you up with some free Bristlecone Fireside stickers. This season's beautiful cover art was provided by Ash Rowan Designs, and our fresh new music was composed by Brenton Jackson. Bristlecone Firesides is a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network. The Dialogue Podcast Network features many great podcasts exploring LDS faith through diverse and rigorous scholarship. Please visit dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network to learn more. For more from Madison, Abby, and the Bristlecone family, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or TikTok, and visit our website to enjoy more earthy content on faith, activism, and belonging to the earth. From the Red Rock Deserts and high mountains of Utah, we wish you peace and goodness as you strive to become one with this good and wild earth. This is Linda Hoffman Kimball of the Dialogue Foundation Board. This is Aaron Brown. I am Chris Kimball. My name is Dalen Amasimaku, board member of the Dialogue Foundation. For nearly two centuries, the Mormon tradition has produced a proud corpus of thought and culture. For the last 50 years, Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, has been the primary repository for the best of that tradition. As individuals have attempted to find new ways to be both Mormon and modern, Dialogue has provided the arena in which these conversations could take place. Dialogue's board of directors has made the decision to make all of the journal's content free the moment it is published. While we are fortunate to be in a position to make this transition, we are asking for your help so we can continue to do so for the next 50 years. Traditional readers can still subscribe to our quarterly print journal, but we also have a new donation model that allows readers to pledge a particular amount per month to support Dialogue's mission. Go to dialoguejournal.com forward slash subscribe to pass along the gift of Dialogue's deep, thoughtful analysis to a new generation of readers. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.